This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Stolen Identity, Plan of the Evil One, a book by Marcella Ward that seeks to inspire you to stay true to your identity in Christ. Find more information at Amazon.com. Welcome to Quick to Listen. Each week, the editors of Christianity Today go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. I'm your host, Mark Galley, and yeah, Morgan Lee, our normal producer and uh, co-host here, is off on a trip. Joining me today is Kyle Rohane, editor of our Vertical CT Pastors. I'm glad Kyle's going to join us because he'll tell you a little bit more about CT Pastors later in the show. If you don't know about it, I think you should know about it. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here. So joining us uh, today is who, Kyle? Our guest today is Mel Robeck. He is the Senior Professor of Church History and Ecumenics and Special Assistant to the President for Ecumenical Relations at Fuller Theological Seminary. His work for Fuller has allowed him to travel the world and talk with Christians in all sorts of movements, from Catholic and Orthodox to Free Church and Pentecostal. He is an ordained minister with the Assemblies of God, and among his many books, he co-edited the Cambridge Companion to Pentecostalism. Welcome, Mel. Thank you. Good to be with you. And you're talking to us from where? Uh, my office at Fuller in Pasadena, California. In sunny Southern California. Did you get affected by the recent quake? Did you feel it? Yeah, we felt it. We felt it pretty well, pretty much. But, uh, you know, it was far enough away that it didn't, didn't cause any major damage. But it went on for about 30 seconds. Oh, wow. That's a little long. Wow. Yeah. But you didn't lose any books off of your bookshelf, I hope. You know, that was my first thought. I came in right away. And no, I didn't lose a single one. There you go. It is funny how our relationship to our possessions, I just uh, had a biking accident. It was very minor, but I fell off the bike, hit the ground, and rather than look at my leg, which was actually cut, the first thing I looked at was my watch to see if it was broken. <laughs> <laughs> so a scholar, the first thing he looks at after an earthquake is his books. There you go. All right, let, let me uh, introduce our topic for the day, and then we can get started. Ordination is a conversation that continues to engage evangelical Christians. For some, it's the debate about women's ordination. For others, as we reported last week, it's about the legitimacy of online ordinations. Each of these debates has a uniquely American context. More than most countries, the U.S. is progressive when it comes to women's issues, and that cannot but influence the debate in the churches. Add to that the unique relationship of church and state regarding marriage, that is, the federal and state governments generally have delegated to churches and their clergy in the U.S. the task of marrying people. If you're not a member of a traditional faith, though, you can now nonetheless jump that hurdle by instantly getting ordained through online services. This, of course, has raised uniquely American debates about who can marry and what constitutes legitimate ordination. As we are wont to do on Quick to Listen, we want to broaden and deepen this conversation and talk about what ordination looks like across the globe. How do various Christian movements practice ordination and what requirements do they expect of their clergy? And how can the practice of global Christianity inform the American debates? So I'm really glad that uh, Mel can join us because of his, his extensive work in ecumenical work, his whole career, 
So I guess the place I'd want to start, uh, Mel, is just talk about your experience so we can get an understanding of what, what type of things you've done that have exposed you to global Christianity. I've been involved in ecumenism since uh, 1983. Uh, it began here in the United States with a request for me to serve on the Commission on Faith and Order of the National Council of Churches, uh, which at that time was pretty scary to me because I didn't know these people. I was an even—no, I was a Pentecostal, actually, not an evangelical. Uh, although we're kissing cousins, if you would. But there are s significant differences between us as well. In, in any case, uh, in that process, I, didn't, I wasn't sure about liberal Christianity. I wasn't sure what I could expect, whether there would be tricks or anything like that. But I went ahead uh, with the permission of my uh, district superintendent and general superintendent and uh, have been involved ever since. In 1985, David Duplessis, who many of your listeners may know the name, he was an ecumenical Pentecostal, and he invited me to join him on the steering committee of the International uh, Roman Catholic Pentecostal Dialogue. And I've been with that dialogue, in fact, have chaired that dialogue on the Pentecostal side since 1992. Wow, that's we, great. Yeah. Yeah. We are in our seventh round at the moment, working on issues related to worship. I've also been involved with the Secretaries of Christian World Communions. That is, every major tradition, whether it's Reformed or Anabaptist or Roman Catholic or even World Council of Churches, have a general secretary. And the general secretary is a member of this particular group. Because no Pentecostal would participate in that, I was invited by that group and given permission by my superintendents to participate in that group. And I've been with them now for 26 years. We're now getting to the point where I think leaders from the Pentecostal World Fellowship will take their rightful place in that group, and I will drop out as I come close to retirement. But in any case, that opened up other doors, and it, with the General Secretary of the World Alliance at that time of Reformed Churches, now the World Communion of Reformed Churches, Milan Opachinsky uh, and I opened up an international dialogue between the WCRC, or work at that time, and Pentecostals, which continues to this day. We're now in our third round coming or down to the end of it, and we will be meeting, the steering committee will be meeting in Maine next month and in uh, the Philippines in about uh, three months. So we'll, I think we'll finish this particular round out at that time. Uh, we've also begun a di dialogue with the Lutheran World Federation. Uh, I was involved in that in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's now in the hands of Jean-Daniel Plus, a Pentecostal from Switzerland. Uh, I am on the committee, but uh, he's the chair, and that's been really a great experience for all of us. And then the World Council of Churches had asked for a number of ways that they might get to meet Pentecostals. So we had a series of consultations in various parts of the world, and then ultimately we've established in 2000 what they call the Joint Consultative Group, which is basically a dialogue between member churches of the WCC and various Pentecostal churches around the world. It's a very difficult dialogue, in large part because many of the World Council churches don't understand one another. And so even if you had a topic like ordination, you'd have a variety of positions in the World Council of Churches, and yet you might have a more uh, homogeneous uh, relationship within the Pentecostal churches. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting stretch for all of us. Yeah, it seems like with all that work, you have hardly time to go to a local Assemblies of God church. Uh, but <laughs> I do whenever I'm in town. I'm, I, I'm a very regular member. 
very happy to be a member of the Assemblies of God or minister with them. Yeah. I, I wanted you to go over that rehearsal, uh, rehearse that because uh, just to help people understand your experience, but also to remind listeners that there are people like you, uh, to some degree like me, who spend time in uh, these meetings. I do a lot of Jewish evangelical dialogue. I've done Muslim evangelical dialogue. Uh, that is often quiet. Not many people know about it, but it does have these global repercussions that we ho- we trust in the long run will be good for the kingdom of heaven. So I appreciate the work you've been doing in that regard. Well, thank you. I, I stick strictly with Christian churches because, uh, I mean, the, the the work that you're doing with Jews and Muslims is a wonderful work, and I totally affirm it. Uh, but many of people in our tradition are confused about interreligious dialogue and ecumenism, thinking it's all one thing and that we're really setting up the church for the final days with Antichrist and all of that. And I really want to make it clear that, no, these Christians are our brothers and sisters, and therefore you need to think about them in a very different way from what you traditionally do. All right, so let's jump in and let me give you a real simple question that I'm sure is just a real simple answer. What is generally meant by ordination across the world? Uh, I think ordination is, in a sense, it's a recognition of a call by God. It's a recognition that there's a certain educational level that has been met, that the boundaries and processes of a particular denomination or church are clear, and that this person is is ready and uh, equipped to be able to conduct the rites, sacramental rites or ordinance rites, within this, the, the Christian community, and uh, often there's a laying on of hands either to recognize that or to uh, ask the Spirit to give special gift to make that possible. But it's really, it's a granting of authority to an individual who's been recognized by the community of faith at one level or another to carry on the work of the faith. So is there anything like what's going on in the States where you have the Universal Church of God, I think it is, or Christ, that just uh, gives people ordination through the Internet? Is there anything like that across the world, in other parts of the world? No, I don't know of any around the world, I, uh, but I have run into it in real ways uh, here in the United States. I, I participated in a wedding, actually, which was being done by a person who had such a paper. He had no idea what he was doing. Uh, basically, kind of, I don't know, said, you know, you like each other, you love each other, you're, you're, you're sharing uh, in the future. Uh, good luck. Uh, basically, I mean, he had no idea what he was doing, but he had gotten his through mail yeah. order online. Yeah. And I had been asked to give a blessing, which I gave, but that was a difficult time for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is interesting that I think, at least in California, I would assume it's true in other states, you can actually have the privilege of performing a service without being a minister. I mean, I had to sign some papers for the county of San Luis Obispo to marry one of my nieces, but it wasn't that big of a deal. It was a small fee. and In Nevada, uh, any minister who performs a wedding must have a, a contract from the state. They have to uh, show that they have a congregation of a certain size and that they have a place of worship. Uh, And that's to keep people from simply doing exactly what you said. I see. Yeah, I want to get into that whole legal aspect of it and another uh, podcast, because I do think it's pretty interesting. It raises a lot of interesting issues. So uh, you had hinted at the fact that the different traditions across the world have different uh, ministerial preparation requirements, ordination requirements. What would be the major traditions and their differences in this regard? Well, let me say, uh, first of all, that 
I think all traditions understand that one must have a personal testimony about how they came to faith and, and in a sense, why it is that they are seeking ordination and so forth. And usually there's a long process in that, but not always. So that and would include uh, include Catholic and Orthodox in that? That would include Catholic and Orthodox. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and also uh, there's... Uh, the expectation that one has a call. You know, that's a pretty subjective thing at some points. Uh, it can be anything from an audible voice, which is very, very rare. But it, it really comes as a result of formation within the spiritual formation within the tradition. And again, I think all traditions have that sort of question. Uh, if you have a testimony and a call, I think those are the two basic things. But educational requirements are very, very different across the, the board. I mean, uh, if I think of Roman Catholics, for instance, every priest has a minimum of seven years of theological education before he is ordained to the priesthood. And that's highly philosophical. It's historical. It's based in uh, many of the documents that have been passed by various councils of churches. It takes very seriously the fathers of the church. Whereas in the Protestant tradition, that's far less common. It is common for I would say mainline Protestant churches, and I would put Presbyterians here in particular, but also Episcopal uh, or Anglican folk, and to some extent Methodists, although it varies from place to place around the world, uh, I would say they all require, generally require, a bachelor uh, degree followed by a three-year MDiv, Master of Divinity degree, or its equivalent. Equivalency is sometimes based upon experience in ministry already, uh, because sometimes they come from free church traditions, which don't require that. My, my own church, the Assemblies of God, we say in our bylaws that no amount of formal education shall ever be a requirement for ordination. And I'm kind of proud of that, although I have a PhD and I wish everybody else would at least have an MDiv, uh, because I think they would gain a number of tools, and I think they would understand Scripture better. But it's I'm really proud of the fact that we recognize that God is the one who calls, and God, in a sense, ordains or sets a person into a position of authority to be able to, for instance, uh, found a church, pioneer churches. I had a great uncle who must have pioneered uh, 25 churches along the West Coast from Washington to Southern California. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and, and he only had an eighth grade education. And wow. I look at that and say, well, praise the Lord for that. At the same time, he couldn't possibly do the kinds of ministry I do, and I wouldn't have a clue how to go out and plant a church. Okay. Well, then I won't call you when I want to plant a church here in Illinois. I'll be sure yeah. to avoid that. You can call my brother, but not me. Okay. There you go. So building on that a little bit, how would you describe the differences in the traditions uh, about the one conferring the status of ordination. You said in your own tradition, it is God who confers the status of, of ordination. Do other uh, traditions view that differently? Well, I would say, yes, they do. Even even the ones who say that God ordains, for instance, Quakers, uh, the friends, they don't ordain. They say, basically, God ordains. What we do is re we record the gifts that people have, and we keep a record. And the person of record is the person that leads the congregation in a particular time. And, you know, they have both programmed, uh, which means they have regular liturgy like most of us do in other churches, or they uh, are unprogrammed, which means that they there's a lot of quiet time there, and you wait for the Spirit to lead and speak through individuals. So that's one way. Or 
Plymouth Brethren, you know, they don't talk about ordination either. They talk about personal responsibility. They talk about a person's uh, uh, relationship to God, but they call each other brothers, brothers. <laughs> it's men, uh, te uh, technically, yeah. Uh, but And they teach the Bible, and a lot of them are very much self-taught, but, you know, that's the way it would be. Whereas if you look at the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, you're being ordained into an order, in a sense, not not an order like Jesuits or Franciscans, but an order of clergy. It separates you from laity completely, unlike uh, Quakers and, and the Plymouth Brethren, and they are ordained into that so that they have, it's called holy orders into which they are ordained, and that gives them permission then to be involved in the sacraments, to to uh, uh, conduct uh, the Eucharist and, and so forth. It's an interesting aspect of Catholic ordination. I mean, they're they're desperate for more for more priests, and many people chalk that up to the fact that uh, Catholics require priests to be celibate. I don't know if I heard that it was going to take seven years before I could get started. That might be a discouragement too. That's that's a pretty rigorous process, it seems to me. It is, and, and I would say to the most for the most part, the Orthodox are there as well. Although, you know, you can go into some of the villages in Greece or Crete or whatever, and you'll find the Orthodox priests have fairly, in in many cases, a very simplistic understanding of their faith. And and I don't mean that as a put down. I'm just saying uh, they're like lay people with understanding of the rites and the rituals, but not necessarily well trained in the kinds of things we would expect in say, the United States or Canada in the West, uh, where, you know, we spend a lot of time as pastors doing counseling with people at a variety of levels or being involved in local uh, arenas in one way or another. These people are primarily pastors of their little congregations, and there are many of these little congregations throughout that part of the world. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Promise Keepers. The Christian men's ministry that filled stadiums across America is once again calling on men to stand up and be counted. I spoke with Ken Harrison, chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers, about the event. Hey Ken, how would you say the challenge of being a man now compares to the challenge of being a man when the Promise Keepers stopped happening? First of all, back in 98, we were still pretending we were a Christian nation. And what that really has translated into is a lack of identity for men. Men don't know who they are anymore. No one's really affirmed them as men and told them who they are. It's in scripture, so they need to be clear on that. And maybe the foundational problem is pornography. It's destroying our country, it's destroying the church. Because when men are looking at that garbage, they do not have the moral authority within themselves to teach their daughters how to cherish themselves because what they have is valuable. They don't have the moral authority to teach their sons proper respect for women and self-restraint, and they don't have the moral authority to truly cherish their wives and lead them as Christ would. So we see men really becoming passive and stepping out because they know they don't have what it takes to be even a basic leader. For more information, go to promisekeepers.org. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? 
Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. In terms of uh, liturgical matters, you mentioned a few of the commonalities, the sense of call from God, a personal testimony. Would you say that the uh, the laying on of hands, either by a fellow minister or by a bishop, is a consistent part of uh, the ordination service? Yes, I would say so, although the laying on of hands means different things in the different groups. I know that I had hands laid on me by a presbyter. I cannot tell you his name at this point. He died very shortly after he laid hands on me. No connection there, I hope. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, you know, in a sense, it was simply a recognition in our tradition. It's a, simply a recognition, uh, and it's a setting apart. You could say a sanctification, in a sense, of saying this person is now duly authorized to perform the work of the ministry. In other places, it's actually a, in a sense, a dispensation of grace. I mean, it is a sacrament in the Orthodox and in the Catholic tradition. It's understood to be a sacramental act by which the Holy Spirit grants the gifts or the grace necessary to perform the act. So there's a very different understanding of what that means. Yeah, because I know in the Presbyterian Church, when it came to local church business at the time that I was a pastor, the pastor got to choose the text and the sermon and the music for the service. Mm -hmm. And pretty much the session was responsible technically for everything else, although as a practical matter, the pastor did a lot of other stuff as well. Uh, in the Catholic Church, Episcopal Church, that is uh, doesn't believe in women's ordination, for example, only the uh, a male priest can preside at the at the Eucharist. But pretty much, uh, and that's about the only, that's one of the one of the unique privileges of the priest. But you'll find uh, in those churches women that are preaching and leading in administration and all those sort of things. So I think each, for each tradition, what it means to be ordained is, is different as well. Is that correct? That is correct. I've mentioned a couple of the ordination disputes and debates in, uh, in the U.S. What were some across the globe? Well, I, the, the issue of women's ordination is, is still very much a part of the global discussion. It's not simply a North American one, although I would say it started pretty much in North America. And, you know, within the North American context, there are variations. I mean, the Episcopal Church, actually most of the mainline churches at this point in time, ordain women to ministry, full-time ministry within their churches. The Assemblies of God has ordained women since 1932. But the rationale behind ordination for these for women uh, may vary. You know, with with us as Pentecostals, we always look to Joel too. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Uh, you know, your young and the old and the men and the women and so forth. And we look at Acts chapter two as a repetition of Joel's prophecy. And we look at ourselves and say, Yeah, we're Pentecostal, and this applies to us. And therefore, our women should have the right to uh, be ordained. And and that's the reason it's happened. My mother was licensed but not ordained. I asked mom, why why aren't you ordained? Well, I can do everything that an ordained minister can except vote at the national convention. Well, you know, that's that's really amazing. But it's it's a very common 
kind of thing for uh, Pentecostals. But not all Pentecostals are like that. Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, does not ordain. Uh, Church of God in Christ ordains, uh, well, I guess both of them do evangel evangelists and missionaries, but not senior pastors and the like. Whereas uh, in around the world, there is still a great deal of struggle uh, on whether or not women should be ordained in some of these churches. And I would say specifically in Africa, that's the case. I would say also that the LGBTQ plus uh, issues are with all of our churches. And uh, we saw a pretty close to a split in the Anglican World Communion uh, as a result of the American church, the, the uh, Episcopal Church in the United States, ordaining uh, gays and lesbians. But a lot of mainstream churches uh, now do that, at least to some extent. And we have been aware of the, the major arguments in the Methodist Church in the last year. Uh, changes have come about among Presbyterians, the, the Lutherans. But those, that's, that's in America. Is that true globally? That's in, that's in America. But the Anglican Church is a global church in which that is, is really a huge it's a huge issue. And even if you look at the Catholic Church, you know, they've been struggling with this now for about 25 years, I would say. It certainly goes back to John Paul II uh, about should they be admitting gay people to seminary? Is there a difference between attraction and action and what should happen? And I think what what Pope Francis has been trying to say is, look, we need to treat gays and lesbians like they're human beings, and they, they have sinned just like the rest of us, and we need to be pastors to them. But I don't think what he is saying is that what we ought to do is run out now and, and encourage them to apply for ministry positions. And in fact, I think we're seeing, uh, in a sense, a very clear control of that. It, even in the seminaries, they've made changes on uh, the kinds of applicants they have, and they have been watching the formation process of people who claim to be gay. Yeah, I think he made a statement that it's still considered a disordered. I think for people who are deeply uh, identify with the same sex, I think they would be prevented from uh, being ordained. Yeah, because they would say that's a deeply disordered condition. That is correct. So uh, I came across a recent survey of ordained Southern Baptist pastors and deacons. And the survey was asking them questions about uh, ordination standards. So for example, were you uh, tested on certain requirements the same day as your ordination ceremony was uh, set up so that, you know, one way or the other, you're probably going to be ordained. Uh, but one of the questions that was asked was whether or not respondents agreed with the statement that SBC churches need to do more to examine candidates for gospel ministry before they or, are ordained. And I was shocked by, by the response to that. 95% of respondents agreed with the statement. Basically, uh, overwhelmingly, they feel like their own ordination standards should be stricter uh, to some extent which obviously is the opposite of what we we were talking about earlier with seeing online ordination it's uh keeping the standards as low as possible so that your your brother can perform your ceremony but i was curious uh do we see trends across denominations and globally concerning ordination standards do people seem to want tighter or looser standards for ordination uh i'm not sure i know the answer to that i mean it's not an easy uh question to to think about uh, because I think standards are pretty 
stable. They they have been for a long time. Now, there are changes that are going on, uh, especially in the free church tradition, the Pentecostal tradition, and so forth, where I think standards have been lowered rather than raised. But, you know, with the constant uh, problems that we're seeing in the media, that is, ethical breaches of all kinds, I think what what probably drives it is is that need to make clear that we want people functioning in ministry who are ethical and moral. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that seem to slip through that process. You know, I, I am frustrated. <laughs> I, I hesitate to say this on on online or out loud, uh, but say in in the Pentecostal tradition, and I'll say in the Assemblies of God specifically, you know, we work really hard, first of all. We came into existence in 1914 saying education for ministry was one of the things we really wanted to, to throw ourselves into. And we began immediately, within five years, we had established two or three Bible colleges. We established a whole range of them. Then in the 50s, we said, we really need to expand to a college level and not simply Bible college. It needs to be a four-year program. It needs to be uh, something that has integrity. It needs to be accredited. And then we established in the 70s uh, several seminaries, the Assemblies of God, the Church of God, Church of God in Christ, all established seminaries. And uh, it looked like we were moving in the direction that I particularly like, because I think it gives people more tools to work with. They understand culture better, theology better, history of where they've come from and how they can work with people in the future, the skills uh, side of things. All of those things are available. But in recent years, we have seen the development of little Bible schools, again, in local congregations. Now, there's one side of me that wants to affirm that and say, yeah, everybody's a minister in one sense. We are brothers and sisters, and uh, the kind of education that's given there is typically very lightweight and often and typically with non-accredited faculty members, usually pastors in their retirement or people who think they uh, know a, a bit but couldn't qualify to become a college professor or anything like that. And so it's begun to cope down to the point where it's not very hard to get a license and then ordination is based upon a couple of years of experience following the license, even as an assistant pastor or maybe a church planter, I don't know. But it, it seems to me that it's dropping rather than rising. And if anything, I think in this day and age, with complicated cultural interactions from around the world, I don't see how uh, less education is better than more education. So I would expect those standards to be raised. I still am committed very strongly to people who are consistent in their faith, who understand the boundaries and the processes of their particular uh, tra tradition or denomination, and uh, really are willing to dig deeply into the scripture. You know, I, I cited my great uncle Eddie a while ago saying that he had planted a lot of churches with an eighth grade education, but I would put his ability to understand the text of scripture up against just about anybody I know with an MDiv because he spent his time before God, and he spent his time in the Word. Yeah, I think one exception to the uh, ordination standards would be the Catholic Church. I know they've firmed up quite a few things in terms of their seminary education and their psychological testing of priests, but it comes as a result of a crisis that they, they've endured. And so, in, in fact, a lot of recent uh, allegations about uh, ministerial abuse and bishop abuse they are talking about incidents that happened before 2002 when all these new uh, 
rules and regulations came into place. So I think they've done a, from my understanding, they've done a pretty good job of firming things up in that regard. But then you see another trend. Uh, I even see it in my Anglican church. I belong to uh, Anglican Church in North America, which is a break off from the Episcopal Church, where there is this tendency where, where pastors, and this would be just not in Anglicanism, but a lot of free churches where they get their training by mentoring through their pastor. They may take the occasional seminary class, but really their training is on the ground training and they're skipping the 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 ordination process altogether which it, which is in and of itself more rigorous the traditional process of going to school i've i've seen that uh, trend myself as well and actually i was having a conversation with a pastor uh, just a few weeks ago i believe he's in the e free church and he was talking about the number of other pastors that he's seen come through their their denomination desiring to plant churches, but the credentialing, uh, whether that's ordination or an MDiv, whatever whatever formal education uh, is a part of that, is seen as more of a hurdle in the way of getting to the practice of actual ministry. You know, you see, you see larger churches uh, that are able to train from within uh, that are not denominationally affiliated. And in many cases, I've spoken to pastors who prefer the pastors that they that they bring on staff not uh, be trained in uh, another seminary context because they want them trained in their very specific uh, culture and ethos. Exactly, yeah. Way, yeah, yeah. Of, way of doing ministry. I know that all this goes on, and it certainly goes on in my own denomination, but I, I would have to say... You know, as a person who has spent his entire life in theological education, I've been here at Fuller for 45 years. Um, to show how old Emil is, he was there before I went there and graduated. So that's how old <laughs> that guy is. Yeah, that's true. And uh, it, and I had taught it at what is now Vanguard University uh, for two years before I uh, began working at Fuller. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a long time. And for me to see in a sense, the downgrading in so many places. And I look at it as a downgrading. I mean, let me, say, let me say it this way. When you come to faith and you are in a community of faith, the question is, who is able to lead the people in that community of faith? Let's say you don't have a pastor. What, what do you do? Well, you usually rely upon mature lay people to carry on with the, the worship service until you find a person that's suitable for that. And, and I am not looking for people to simply be trained in seminaries or in colleges. I'm looking for people who know God, and, I'm, and I want them to understand the Word of God. But our culture is such that I don't know how you get by with simply that for a very long period of time. You might last, I, I, I sometimes say, the Assumptions of God is wonderful at uh, bringing people to Christ. Uh, once they're in the church, what do they do with them? You know, I mean, I think we're good for a month, maybe six weeks. Then we have to pay <laughs> hire a Presbyterian to teach them something, huh? Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange kind of a mix, but I, I mean, I covet education for them, but at the same time, I recognize that they can lose things in education as well. I mean, seminary is not a cure-all for anybody that's, uh, that's already troubled, but it is a wonderful it does provide a series of tools that people can use that can expand ministry and enable people to understand. One of the things I fear the most is our inability to remember where we've come from. 
Why do we hold the positions that we do? And I think about this as an ecumenist all the time. Why is it that most evangelicals and Pentecostals are still stuck in the 16th century as though the Catholic Church has not changed at all? We have, but they haven't. And it's the lack of our knowledge of history and the ability to look at their theology and compare it with ours. I mean, Pope Francis put out a statement two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, to the charismatic renewal of the Catholic Church. Your grace from the Holy Spirit is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to go out and share this baptism in the Holy Spirit with the rest of the Catholic Church. Now, who in the who in the world in a Pentecostal tradition would have ever expected such a thing? Exactly. To yeah, I've but been now to it's a mandate to the charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church. Yeah, I went to a Catholic event last summer because a Catholic friend was speaking on her experience in in abortion, mm-hmm. and it was amazing to me how, how they were. If I didn't know I was in a Catholic setting, the way they were talking about the Holy Spirit and the Lord leading me and the Lord touching me, I would have thought I was in a Pentecostal service. Yeah, so so I think we need to recognize. Yeah, there's been tremendous ferment and change in in the Catholic Church among other churches and traditions. Yeah. I mean, that's a good plea, and I'm imagining uh, the your answer to this question, but what would be, as you see the way pastors, ministers, priests, bishops across the, uh, across the globe, what would be some of the more pressing needs that we can be praying for and supporting in our own churches and in denominations? Uh, if I, you know, if I limit myself to the United States, it's obvious that our political situation, regardless of what side we're on uh, or whether we're not on any side, is desperately in need of prayer and action to the extent that we can give it. Uh, I also think that our confusion in terms of uh, our sexual culture uh, is something that absolutely needs to be prayed for. I think the question of um, how the United States relates to the rest of the world, the kind of foreign policies that we have, and I don't mean this for Uh, President Trump uh, or for President Obama, but our foreign policy looks always to self-interest rather than to the interest of others. And there's an enormous amount of people out there that need our help and need our care and uh, without all kinds of strings being attached that are for our good only. Um, And I think we have a constant need of uh, people in our own culture and in our own churches uh, that are desperate for good leadership. I fear a culture that uh, prides itself on training leaders. Uh, We need more followers, and we need less business models for leadership and more a question of following God uh, so that he provides the kinds of leaders that we actually need. Okay, that's very good. And I think that's, from what you've described, the global church, the, the very similar tensions in the global church as well. So... That's great. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's very helpful uh, to step above the fray for just a little bit and see how things, uh, how what ordination means and how it works worldwide. But it sounds like a, a lot of the temptations and the challenges, especially theological education. I've heard that for years. So uh, just need to remind uh, listeners that this podcast is made possible by Christianity Today, the magazine. And the more we subscribers we have, the more uh, we're able to do this sort of thing. So I encourage you to subscribe to CT. Uh, that would be both the print and online. And one of the things we offer online is a what we call a vertical or a section of the online world that's called CT Pastors. And that's the thing that Kyle is, is responsible for. And I thought for you that aren't aware of it, uh, you should be. 
Yeah. So as the editor of CT Pastors Vertical for Christianity Today, I work on our content for senior and solo pastors specifically. Uh, That includes the online articles. Uh, We try to provide wisdom for pastoral best practices, self-care. We we publish encouragement articles of pastors doing things well, case studies, uh, advice from uh, for common challenges and pain points of ministry, uh, and mostly from other pastors. We 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 really appreciate the uh, time tested wisdom from veterans who can uh, then pass along what they've learned through through their practice. But in addition to the online content, we also publish a twice-annual special issue specifically for pastors. Um, I'm currently working on our fall issue, which will look at the state of pastoral ministry in the upcoming decade. And uh, by subscribing to Christianity Today and identifying yourself as a pastor, you get access to all of that. And, uh, of course, the full archives of Leadership Journal, which, in in my opinion, is uh, in in some cases the best uh, things ever written on certain pastoral topics, and then the thing, of course, that I hear most pastors talk about that they they enjoy more than almost anything else we do. We have our archive of ministry cartoons. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I was a associate pastor at Leadership for a number of years, and as a pastor. What you don't want is more articles telling you what you should be doing and what you're not doing well, which is just so aggravating to read. What the thing I like about leadership is it's always been come alongside the pastor and, and, incur, and been an encouragement. We know you want to do better work with committee work. We know you want to be a better preacher. We know you want to do pastoral care. Well, here's here's some ways that other pastors have done it. That might, you might find something here helpful. So, if you're not a pastor, if you are a pastor and you're not subscribing, we encourage you to do so. If you are not a pastor, this is a tremendous gift for your pastor, associate pastor, anybody on staff. Give them a gift for a year and see if they don't uh, want to subscribe year after year. I think you'd find that's the case. All right, now we come to our time called Precious Moments, where we think about something that brought us joy this week. So, Kyle, as our guest co-host. You get to go first? Sure. So this one is actually very easy for me right now because two weeks ago, my wife gave birth to our second daughter, uh, Jolene Susanna Rohing. There you go. Um, That's I, probably the top precious moment of yeah, the day. Yeah, so, so beat that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't know uh, that I could love anyone as much as my first daughter, but of course, the moment you see uh, uh, the next daughter, uh, you fall completely in love again. And the thing that I'm most amazed by right now is that just the power of the uh, newborn hypnosis that my wife and I can be up all night change hundreds of diapers and shirts because of spit-ups, and then you hold her and you look into her eyes, and all of that is, you, you get the memory wipe, and you ask, can I do this again, please? Can I change another diaper? Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Where could people reach you or uh, get in touch with you, their Twitter or online account? Yeah, so the easiest way uh, to get in touch with me is through email, uh, K-R-O-H-A-N-E-K-R-O-H-A-N-E at ChristianityToday.com. I am on Twitter, but I'm not very active, so that's right. probably not the best way to. There you go. Okay. Okay, Mel, what's been happening in your life? Well, uh, two weeks ago, on the 14th, uh, my wife and I celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. There you go. Wow. And Congratulations. Uh, but she made it easy. You know that? Uh, 
I have a wonderful wife. She worked as a registered nurse at the Huntington Hospital here in Pasadena for many, many years. And I went to her retirement and the songs of praise that her co-workers uh, gave her were incredible. I was especially touched by a Muslim woman who uh, uh, you know, had a whole litany of things that she would say, all of you knew that I was a Muslim and she was a Christian, uh, and you didn't welcome me, but she did. You didn't help me here, but she did. And, you know, as real, I was in tears before it was done. So God has been very generous to me in the person of Patsy Robeck. Wow. You guys, <laughs> these are mega joys. Mine's very Monday. Let's get down to earth, okay? My oh yeah, Mel. Where where can people uh, listen to you, watch you, follow you? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, they they can contact me on uh, email at c m robeck r o b e c k at fuller edu. But I'm also on a weekly television show called the American Religious Town Hall, and you can look that up on americanreligious.org. Okay, great. I didn't realize we were talking to a star of stage and screen, so that's great. Yeah, not there much. We <laughs> well, my precious moment is a is uh, mundane, but I think some of the listeners will understand it. I'm a I'm a landlord. Uh, I'm responsible for a number of apartments, and one of the things I really enjoy about it is doing the maintenance work. Believe it or not, it gets my head basically out of my head of thinking and analyzing and writing and that sort of thing. And I do something really concrete, and if a if a light switch isn't working, I go in there and fix it, and it either it's either is working or it isn't working, and that's there's just something tremendously satisfying about that. And this week, I had a big challenge. I had to get to get right down to the nitty gritty. I had a backed up toilet that took me two or three trips to figure out what the heck was going on, <laughs> and the last time I flushed it, it worked beautifully, and that was just such a moment of satisfaction. There are, there are a few <laughs> moments of satisfaction more encouraging than that flush that actually... It actually works, yeah. So uh, it's just part of my uh, weekly routine of fixing one thing or another, and it does, it does for some reason, bring me real joy. So people can follow me uh, by subscribing to the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I, uh, Galley Report. Uh, you can get to it by going to christianitytoday.com slash the Galley Report. I... I link to articles, comment on them, and we have about uh, 20,000 subscribers. So if you'd like to make it 20,001, I would really welcome you to do that. So thank you for uh, listening to this edition of Quick to Listen. Uh, it's produced by Cray Allred, Richard Clark, and Morgan Lee. I suppose technically I'm a producer this week, but I don't feel like I still know what I'm doing, so I'm not going to do I'm not going to say that. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll get to you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.